Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Chai Break Podcast. This is your host, Shweta Ravi Shankar. And Ramachari from New York City. This season, we're excited to interview a roster of amazing South Asian women who have broken barriers, questioned norms, and continue to make a mark for themselves. They come to you from all over the globe, from Bangalore to New York, Melbourne and everywhere in between. We hope you enjoy these conversations as much as we do and chime in along the way. So let's get started. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Chai Break Podcast. Today's Chaiversation is one that's been a long time coming. Today's guest actually is our youngest so far this season, and she's also someone who's made a very significant impact with the South Asian diaspora space. So let's give you a little hint. So if you, like us, thought Diwali kind of blew up in the best possible way in 2022, from the White House party to Madam VP's party and a plethora of other events that you attended as well or heard about, well, our guest today, Jashima Vadhera, and her marketing agency might have something to do with it. So without further ado, let's begin today's episode with a brief introduction. That's correct. And let me have the honor of introducing Jashima. So Jashima Vadera is the co-founder and CEO of Ode, a brand strategy, talent management, and business development firm that caters predominantly to children of immigrant brands, businesses, and artists. While companies rely on third-party metrics, Jashima specializes in taking a lived experience meets data approach to representing talent and brands. And we're going to talk about that specifically from communities whose consumption patterns and preferences are often not aggregated by general marketing data firms or cultural nuances that talent agencies are not well-versed in. Old's Talent Roster has worked with some amazing, amazing companies. For example, Audiomag, Netflix, TuneCore, Amazon, Vivo, Lincoln Center, Meta, Applause, Culture Kazana, Brown Girl Mag, Wow. 5X Fest, Daisy Fest, and many more on both the talent representation and brand strategy side. With a background in music journalism, consumer psychology, and events, Jashima is the link between brands and companies to create intentional and impactful campaigns. So, wow, that was a lot of mouthfuls right there. So, hi, Jashima. Welcome to the podcast. And thank you so much for graciously accepting our invitation despite your really busy schedule, I can imagine. No, thank you for having me. What? This is so exciting. <laughs> we are very excited. So one thing about our podcast is, you know, we really, really like to dive in a little bit more about how did you come like, you know, to this far? What was the journey and so on? So tell us a little bit about your growing up years, like your childhood years, what motivated you to get here? Yeah, absolutely. What motivated me to write about musicians? <laughs> um I think a lot of different things growing up. I'm very, very fortunate that my parents are both entrepreneurs and extremely creative people. And I think for that reason, growing up, they might have preferred that I take not a more traditional route, but a more stable one. And I think that's something we don't talk about enough. There's sort of this narrative of, my parents wanted me to have a traditional career path as a lawyer, attorney, engineer, et cetera, doctor. And I, that's not my experience. Um, which I'm very grateful for, but it is my experience that my parents would have preferred I picked a job that gave me X type of salary right out of college and had minimal hours, 
granted me certain healthcare benefits, all things that they didn't have because they chose entrepreneurship and a creative route. Because when you choose entrepreneurship, you're fighting every single day to make your ends meet and often the ends of many other people, employees and people that work with you. And it's a long road. It takes usually average companies a decade to be in a reoccurring revenue cycle that can support them. And so I grew up with parents and a mom that was an interior designer and a dad that's a jeweler. And they ran around being creative every day. And I grew up between New York and Arizona. And so my parents got divorced when I was pretty young. And then my brother passed away, but we were a super musical family. And Jay-Z has this quote. And the quote summarizes to something of the effect that some people are incredible music makers and some people are incredible music listeners. Mm -hmm. And I'm really fortunate that I think we're a family of incredible music listeners who were never nurtured to become incredible music makers, whether that was by circumstance back home in India or the families my parents are from. But inherently, there was always an incredible amount of music being played in my home, whether that was Selena Quintanilla, A Tribe Called Quest, Run DMC, Punjabi folk music, Muhammad Rafi, Mr. Tatali Khan. So I grew up with influences sonically that were really, really, really diverse. And then I grew up between New York and Arizona in environments that were extremely diverse and different from one another from a socioeconomic lens. And mm -hmm. I started to realize that where you grow up and how much money you have and what schools you go to and what class or caste the world tries to put you in is permeated by one thing. It's permeated by pop culture and media. And so often, if you live in America or outside of America, whatever's happening in mainstream American media tends to find its way to wherever you are because of the strong chokehold American media has on the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so I started observing people growing up and I thought to myself, how does this person tell their story if they're not allowed into this space? Mm -hmm. Whether that's through systemic oppression or lack of education or resources or the zip code you live in. And how do I understand people across these very, very, very different walks of life, including my own? And it's because when you listen to a song, everybody's body wants to move. When you listen to lyrics for a life you've never lived, you somehow relate to that. And a big part of that was that my brother loved hip hop and we loved Punjabi music. And a lot of regions in India have a long history of poetry about resilience to percussion. Mm -hmm. And so that concept in America is hip hop. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of cultures, pre-America, that's something that was the only way to tell your stories because you weren't allowed to publish books mm -hmm. or aggregate knowledge. So this is a long-winded answer for I grew up in different environments that were really, really diverse. Mm -hmm. I had many different experiences in life where we were extremely privileged and wealthy and very much on the other side of that for a number of years in my adult life. Mm -hmm. And I think that I realized I was never going to be the Indian girl that was really disciplined and good at math. Mm. <laughs> but I could convince people to let me talk and help tell their stories. And so I started to really love music and I started writing about music in high school. That is so interesting because um, I have a 13-year-old. And but as you were telling your story, and I'm only thinking about her, and she's kind of it's very similar. She's she's into music. She's writing music lyrics and she's spending her time kind of, I think, analyzing and observing. She's a great observer. So 
yeah, I, I find a huge, uh, what to say, encouragement just hearing your story. And I'm just like, in my head, I'm like, oh, wait, Ananya is exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, call me in three years if she wants an internship. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, Joshua. <laughs> Now, this is uh, actually very fascinating because, you know, of all the guests we've talked to and whenever we ask about their family backgrounds, yeah. um, we recently, I think, um, you know, what story I can connect with was um, when we interviewed um, Indian American actress Anjali Bimani. We interviewed her and she, you know, obviously picked the arts, you know, creative field. And we were like, what was your family like? And she's like, oh, both my parents were doctors, but they were just like, they encouraged me to go this route. And they're like, if you can figure out a way to make money, we're okay with it. Right. You know, so when I hear these very different kind of experiences and and I see, you know, where that creativity, where that spark actually comes from is when parents can understand that, see that and kind of give you that leeway, you know. And again, I actually connect this with another, you know, a facet of my own life because my daughter is like that. I can see that she loves math, but, you know, she tells me every day, she's like, I want to be SS, scientist and singer, is what she tells me. That's like all the time. And the thing is that now, you know, with the exposure that I have and, you know, having lived here, having gone through that traditional mindset of, you know, you have to, you know, because I passed out as an engineer, so you have to be this. So hearing these kind of different experiences kind of gives us hope that, you know, this new generation will have more options and it is okay to do multiple things if you are good at it and if you can handle it, right? So thank you for this. I feel like it's so inspirational. I think creativity is being uh, appreciated and I think we have to give a, you know, kudos to our generation who's actually helping the younger generation appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, where creativity is kind of stunted as you, um, you know, force people or pressurize them to go into certain areas where probably they were not inclined to but that's a really good story to begin with i also think that it's it's quite important to acknowledge that so much of how we live is based on survival in the west Mm -hmm. or survival in the countries that our parents are from where your individual humanity has very little value because you're treated as replaceable and so a lot of parents and families want their kids to have these skills or be in these careers not because they don't love the arts but because inherently, they want you to be so valuable that you're not disposable. Oftentimes, when I'm talking to other South Asians, I hear us speak in a way and listen in a way where we're listening to see if we can be useful, relate to something, or commiserate. Because we've been conditioned for so long in the modern world to talk about who we work for, not the work that we do. Mm. Who is famous that we know? not the thing we created that we're proud of. And so we never learn to have value for our own skills or our own brains and our thought process. But inherently, we're some of the most artistic people in the world, Mm -hmm. right? My co-founder's name is Shushana Chaudhary and she's Bengali and she's one of my favorite people in the world. But her entire community's commitment to the arts is solely correlated to the fact that they legitimately think it gives you the access to living a fuller life and expressing your feelings Mm -hmm. in a way that's very different to how I grew up as a North Indian, right? Mm -hmm. I think that inherently, whether you become a dancer at Berklee College of Music or a singer, that doesn't actually matter, but you will dance (laughs) and you will learn poetry (laughs) and you will read incredible books by incredible Bengali authors and you will retain your language and you will eat your food because there's something about that that's inherent to the way I think we all are. Mm-hmm. And so I don't I don't think we're a people that aren't artistic or aren't creative. I think 
we've lost the meaning of why that's important because of trying to survive. Right, mm-hmm. I agree. So as you know, me and Rama grew up in India and then we moved here in the last decade or two decades. So what did you as, you know, an Indian American growing up here, did you see a lack of representation in the field and especially in the creative field that you picked? You know, you started writing in music and journalism and all of that. And what kind of, you know, sparked your uh, interest to be like, you know, this is what I want to do and carve that trajectory to today, you know, starting out with your co-founder? I think there's probably three moments I can pinpoint. The first one was elementary school in fifth grade. They had this thing here called promotion, where mm. 10-year-olds need a very extravagant graduation. <laughs> but I, there was a poetry competition and I won. And so I spoke at my promotion from elementary school to middle school. And I remember getting on stage and feeling like, oh, this I like. And I liked it in a way that felt different from dancing and dance performances and felt different from singing. And it was because people were listening to me for the first time. And I think despite having wonderful parents, sometimes some of the experiences in our culture are often that women are not listened to. And I mean, like really, really heard. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time, I was standing in front of 200 people that were listening to me. And then when I got off, they asked me questions about what I said. And suddenly, that was the moment where I was like, oh, does what I say have value? Mm. And that was when I think the interest peaked in me to write and to recite and care about things like thoughts and journalism and poetry and politics. Um, and then in terms of representation, yeah, when I was younger, Soumya Grishnamurthy, who I still can't believe I've had the pleasure of meeting, but she was on MTV and she was one of the first hosts that were women, period. But I had never seen a South Asian woman in mainstream music. And in mainstream music, journalism. Mm. And this is a distinction I make because I consumed a lot of mainstream media growing up. Mm -hmm. And so for me, someone being South Asian like today and catering to South Asians, it's a nice and beautiful thing, but that wasn't representation for me. Seeing someone from a similar background that was positioned as equal to other people in an inclusive environment was representation Mm -hmm. for me. So probably seeing her host was really, really exciting for me. And then when I got a little bit older in high school, Shomi Budwari, who's an incredible Bangladeshi music video director, he's done everything from Beyonce to Shah Rukh Khan. And uh, he did a music video called All of the Lights mm-hmm. for Lupe Fiasco. And I wrote about this, I interviewed him once, but my brother and I used to read the credits of everything mm-hmm. because my mom emphasized to us that who you see on screen is a fraction of a production of anything in life, politics, news, journalism. So you need to do your diligence of understanding who was on that team to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So I used to read the ingredients to shampoo bottles. And then I used to wait in a movie theater until the very last credit left the screen. And so my brother and I were reading the credits of this music video. It was like very, very early YouTube Mm -hmm. days. And and he was like, oh, I think this director is brown. And I was like, no, there's no way. Like, that's just not a real thing. And he was like, no, 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 he is. And we were really excited about it. And then fast forward nearly 10 years, I'm interviewing Shomi and my brother has since passed away. But for me, I was like, this is so cool because we loved hip hop the way that Shomi loved hip hop. Mm -hmm. It was a part of who we were and the communities we grew up around. And so I think those three moments were moments where I was like, ah, 
I see myself here, but I see myself because of the way somebody else loves what they do, not because they were South Asians or not because they were talking about South Asians. It was because they existed with a craft in a space where so few of us were allowed to exist with our craft. Mm. And the awesome culture in the South Asian scene is kind of almost goes hand in hand, right? Like in this, and it's not an option, at least the, the time when I was growing up back in India. And same thing, I'm sure, with Shweta as well, is that the arts and uh, music and dance was just part and part of how you were raised. It was never um, something like where you were you know, oh, would you like to learn music? At least I was never asked, do you like to learn music? I was like, you're learning music. Do you like to dance? Are you learning dance? (laughs) It was like, this was the upbringing we had back then where you have have to learn music and dance. That's along with your education. These are the boxes that you need to check. So um, in South Asian culture, I think that kind of goes a little bit hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, But from there, like, you know, I can sense your inspiration to kind of go into the path of music, journalism, and so on. But how did that jumpstart into marketing agency? Like, what was that spin? In high school, I was in a business club called DECA. And my brother wasn't it before me. He was older than me. And he was like, you should do this. And I was like, no, I won't like it. Like, that's a you thing. I don't do financial math. There's no way. And then obviously, I did it. <laughs> as one does. You bicker with your older sibling, and then you try to be just like them. And so. I went to a high school that was different than my brother's. He grew up in a very Caucasian part of Arizona that was exceedingly racist. And so I open enrolled to a different school through the IB program. And this little anecdote is funny because I got an F in math and not an Indian F, an actual F because I was very, very, very bad at algebra. Mm -hmm. And I think because I was good at talking, I talked my way into getting the signature on the honors class and getting into the IB program. I was like, it's fine. Like I had a surgery. I'll go to all the tutoring. I finessed all of my professors in middle school and high school to keep (laughs) signing these pieces of paper so I could be, because the only way to go to a school in a different zip code was to be a part of this program. Mm. And I definitely was not apt at mathematics enough to be in this program because Later on in the story, I get another F in high school in honors algebra because I should not, plot twist, be in honors algebra. (laughs) But what I did get out of that was going to a school that was extremely ethnically diverse Mm. and socioeconomically diverse. And there was a huge emphasis on kids participating in the arts, kids participating in business. And so DECA was this club where you had to make marketing plans and have business ideas and come up with innovative ways to sell them. You had to work in a student store You had to work with local charities on packages for foster care groups and make pies with the culinary department and sell them. And so I started realizing the three things I thought I knew really well were food, feelings, and music. Mm -hmm. And all of them lived inside of every single business Mm -hmm. or every single story you tell. So I don't think it was ever writing that I became obsessed with because my grammar and punctuation was and arguably still is offensive. Um, But I think that I was in love with storytelling. Storytelling. And so being part of that marketing club allowed me to travel a lot, which Mm. comes with an immense amount of privilege, but allowed me to travel and allowed me to learn what it's like to have to communicate a story to somebody and make them buy into it, whether that story is a business, what parts of that business make it relatable, how I present that story, how I present my own story while I'm pitching a business. And so it was like four years of Shark Tank all the time. And I really, really, really loved it. 
And then I did things like speech and debate and student government and um, international club and took a lot of languages. And I started to realize that if you can just learn to speak to people mm-hmm. and to listen to them actively, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what language you're talking to them in. It doesn't matter the subject matter. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. And then um, I graduated and I moved back to New York because I wanted to run from Arizona. And I worked in luxury automotive marketing with a childhood best friend's mom who needed help in accounting. And I scanned papers while I was in college. And then somebody quit in marketing. And I walked downstairs and I was like, this is why you should give me a job. Here's my resume. And I told her my story and she bought it. So I spent a year working for Experience Auto Group in luxury automotive marketing events. So Mm -hmm. effectively, people would buy their Ferrari, Porsches, Maseratis, Volvos, and we would plan events for them to encourage Mm. them to buy more of those cars or continue spending time and money with us. And at the same time, I was working at a law firm for medical malpractice and personal injury and scanning papers there because I just needed the money and New York was expensive. And I dropped out of a four-year university and joined community college. And I worked two jobs full-time while going to school full-time. And then once I got the role in marketing, I had enough credits to not go to school for a little while and still graduate on time for mm-hmm. my age, whatever that means. I quit the law firm and I spent a year learning. And it was excruciatingly hard. But I also learned everything about how to turn a story into a brand partnership, right. into an event, mm-hmm. um, how to make things make sense across industries. Mm-hmm. There was actually a very prominent South Asian jeweler at the time who has since gotten in some trouble. But uh, we did a large brand partnership with them. So it was interesting to me to see that. And to also observe the type of South Asians that got access to an environment like that and the Mm -hmm. types that didn't. Mm -hmm. Because I very much grew up around people who, for a short period of my life, grew up with parents that were doctors, lawyers, engineers. But then for the rest of my life, that was not at all the common theme. Mm -hmm. And so it made me think about class and policy and oppression and colonization and That informed a lot of my interest in journalism actually early on. Mm. And then I started to realize the same reason I didn't go to law school. That takes a lot of time and Mm -hmm. a lot of grammar and punctuation (laughs) and some math. So instead, maybe the details of politics and news journalism that I love and marketing that I love can be applied to pop culture, entertainment, small businesses and media if Mm. I teach them and learn how to tell their stories meticulously and humanize them and talk about nuance and layers. And Mm -hmm. so while I was working all of those jobs and going to school, I started learning how to produce concerts and shows with grassroots collectives in New York. And then I met people at Brown Girl Magazine and a bunch of different South Asian collectives that were smaller queer spaces. And they all had small businesses Mm -hmm. and I had ideas Mm -hmm. and They let me pitch them my ideas and some of those ideas worked. Mm. And so I started to realize, oh, brand strategy and marketing is the same thing as writing a piece on somebody. It's research, it's application of my lens and perspective, and then it's the goal of humanizing their narrative, right? Except now it's with products and services instead Mm. of the medium of singing or writing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of how that started. That's actually a great analogy. My gosh, it's, um, as you're talking about it, I'm having this audiovisual running in my head, how you just, those pieces nicely fit together. And I think it's the first time I'm hearing how you really nicely articulated the connection between media and, uh, you know, music, media kind of thing, and just like into marketing. It's just wonderful. 
I'm taking a lot of pointers here, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I read something very interesting on your website, and I think it goes back to what you were saying. Um, it talked about, you know, how there's a huge disconnect between our stories and who tells them, you know, and that is where your unique lens of the way you market and, you know, do strategy for South Asian creatives and brands come into play. And obviously, we see the disconnect. We've seen the disconnect in the past, you know, and I think it's obviously improving. We're on that path. But break it down for our listeners. What do you think are the missing pieces? And how did you go setting up these new standards? And especially with Ode's unique approach to launching a brand, an artist or an event that kind of, you know, gets everyone talking. Like even just, for example, if you take Diwali last year, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think a few different things. All of that is largely because of my team and my co-founder. We met making short films together and she's incredible. But Shoshana and I don't identify our work with being South Asian. Mm. We don't identify mm. it with servicing South Asians. The experience we know to be most true to us is that we are children of immigrants okay. and we understand what it's like to live in immigrant communities. Mm, mm. And I say that because the word South Asian is a term that's become popularized by the U.S. Census Department, right? It's the easiest way for them to categorize us. That's seven to eight countries with billions, if not trillions of people, mm-hmm. migration patterns you're talking about. Mm, mm. And so I think the first place that we sort of have a gap in representation and how we address that is that we're trying to represent something mm-hmm. instead of trying to chase the opportunity to be equal in our craft or skill, mm-hmm. right? And that's something we're really passionate about discerning at Ode because when we look at things, I don't want to be the spokesperson for South Asians. Mm. I've covered predominantly musicians of South Asian background because nobody else would cover them. Right. Not because they're South Asian, because I thought they were great. Mm-hmm. And when I can't write about them at a larger publication in music in general because they won't let us in, then we had to go internally and there's incredible platforms like Round Roll, like Juggernaut, like all of these other entities. And that's by design, right? It's by design that we weren't allowed to be presented in what is the mainstream. But I think it's really, really, really important for us to develop preference as a community and to do research. Mm-hmm. And so one of the gaps is definitely that we're not all the same. And I think, you know, we need to start being able to see people and be like, it is wonderful that I don't feel discriminated by you. Mm-hmm. It is wonderful that I don't feel judged by you. It is wonderful that when I sh- see Shweta dancing, I feel like, ah, that's like a little slice of home. That's something I can understand. But when I write about her or I book her, it's because she's a great dancer, mm-hmm. not because she's a South Asian dancer, not because she's a woman, but because she's great. And she deserves to be paid equally, programmed equally. And I think we're slowly getting there, at least in America. But London and Toronto are great examples of markets that have older immigration patterns and larger pockets of communities in specific areas. And so they have preference in a way that we don't get. Mm-hmm. I think that there's this sort of sentiment of needing to support everybody or if you constructively criticize something, it's hate. And in reality, I would love for us to be in a world where there's so many South Asian businesses that it's okay if you don't like that restaurant. It's okay if you don't like that movie. Yeah. You don't have to, because maybe that doesn't speak to you. And allowing people to be imperfect 
and to be in progress and to be learning, that I think creates real equity in media and in the world. I need to be able to be like, wow, I read something I wrote two years ago, four years ago, yesterday, and that was bad, but cool. Every writer's written something bad. (laughs) Yes, as a writer, I'll tell you that. Right? And so, yeah, I think the gaps are us trying to represent too many people Mm. and too many things. Mm. I think the gaps are the need for perfectionism out of Mm. people based on their ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And then I think as a community, I'm really excited for us to develop some preferences and some nuances and understand, oh, what does Shweta or Rema or Joshma like as individuals? And then do they like it because it's culturally informed because somebody looks like them? Or is it just nice to see the person in an environment positioned as equal to other people? Mm -hmm. And so when we market our businesses, our brands, our artists, or when we're producing an event, we're not trying to make it be great for the South Asian community. We're trying to have it be great such that anybody that comes to that event, listens to that song, sees that campaign, can be like, ah, that's great work. Even if they can't relate to that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Shushana, my co-founder, produced and directed a short film called Davut a few years ago that I assisted directed on. And it's on Roku now, which is exciting for us. But when she did that, I've never been to a... I've been to Punjabi versions of a Davut, Mm -hmm. a, a dinner that you go to, but I've never been to a... Bengali or Bangladeshi Dabak. But what can I relate to when someone watches that film? Incredible actors, mm-hmm. incredible cinematography, mm-hmm. incredible color grading, warm tones that remind me of our culture in general, certain things that the film addresses without being too on the nose, but are relatable narratives. Mm. So we don't have to constantly be looking for the exact same thing. We need to consume our own people the way we consume other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the real key to representation and inclusion. Can I grant people from similar backgrounds as me the same grace, the same opportunity? Will I buy the tickets to their shows? Will I buy their books? Will I show up for them Mm -hmm. in the way that I show up for people that have nothing to do with me? Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, this is very interesting because uh, when me and uh, Rama were talking about, uh, you know, this episode today, this is exactly the conversation we had because, um, you know, this is a good segue because we talked about, you know, diversity and inclusion. But I almost feel like today diversity and inclusion has just become a box, whether you're a corporate, whatever you are, like is a box that they want to just check off. So I think the question is like, are you really trying to retrofit events artists, employees of color, or are you actually trying to do the groundwork to truly make a difference? Because this goes back to how me and you met, you know, at the event and the discussions we had that kind of, you know, sparked this whole conversation about they need to do better. They need to be more informed and, you know, understand those nuances, those layers. And it's very easy to go that route of unknowingly cultural appropriation, Mm -hmm. you know, not understanding where these artists come from and just having that basic, you know, uh, understanding and that lens um, about this stuff. And I have another friend who's in HR, in diversity and inclusion, and this is a conversation I have with her all the time. So what is your take on all this? What is my take on which part? The diversity and inclusion part and how, like, do you see it still being you know, is it a retrofit or is it like, do you also see the work, you know, on the other spectrum? I I think it's getting better. And I think I I love history. And so 
when, when you study empires and you discern why they fell mm-hmm. and why they rise again, and you start looking at agricultural resources, religious conversions, war, and then nature boundaries, mountain ranges, water. There's some of that that if we just paid some attention to, we could avoid some of the same problems, but we just don't do that, right? And so similarly here, we're not the first people to fight for representation. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that America has a long history of how it treats other populations. And I think real success will come from our communities engaging with other communities. And I think that what that means is different for every person, right? So. I'm trying to aggregate my thoughts in a way that I can articulate them well. I think there's two layers of things. One on the South Asian representation front in the world. I I joke that we're going through puberty, where I think everything is South Asian right now. (laughs) These South Asian actors, these South Asian musicians, South Asian this, the Bali this. I barely grew up celebrating the Bali for what it's worth. And when I did with my dad's family, it was a sweet religious holiday where we lit candles and sang a prayer. By no means have I ever been to the Bali parties growing up that were massive (laughs) ordeals with langas and all the like. Yeah. But that's amazing if that's what you want to do. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. That doesn't have to mean those people are the representation of what the Bali is. Right. True. True. But that means our own community needs to grant each other nuance and preference. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that's really important is in the age of social media, and I I have a career because of it, I think people need to research things that happened before 2017. Mm. Because a lot of activists, a lot of people in DEI have been doing this work since well before I was born. Mm -hmm. Very long time in American history. And so understanding that we should not be proud of being the first of anything Mm. because chances are you're probably not the first. Yeah. And so instead of holding on to being the first to do X, Y, Z, be great. Yeah. Be proud of having a great product. Be proud of having a great service. Be proud of telling a great story. Mm -hmm. And so I think right now we're in puberty where the movies are about certain things that to me might be corny to someone else might be exciting, you know, whatever. And I think we'll eventually get to a place where there's more of us being afforded these opportunities such that we no longer feel like we have to support based on ethnicity, but we get to support based on execution. Yeah, right. I think it should be. That's the whole beauty of, you know, America in the sense of like, it's still a fairly new nation. And I think the diversity uh, makes us still growing, um, especially in middle America, because we're seeing that happen in the coastal area, in, in the opposite ends of the coast, in California, New York, where it's a given. But more so in the middle, I think we're seeing complete lack of it. and. Um, that piece of it is growing. Oh. Uh, but it's so interesting you talk about diversity and inclusion because recently I was reading an, an op-ed article in New York Times and where they're saying like, now it's become such a buzzword, DEI, DEI, DEI. Everybody's doing this, a cultural offices, diversity, equity, inclusion offices. Like in the last, I think, two years, probably post-COVID, this has even exploded even more. I think after George Floyd, it's kind of even taken a whole new heights, right? So the article actually mentioned about how are these efforts really, really helping in the sense of like, you know, are we doing something to check boxes or are we really dealing with, you know, issues of DEI and how to uh, bring about real change, you know, in, in, in workplaces. So it was very interesting because that article pretty much argued against some of the practices that is being unraveled in the last two years as DEI efforts when it's probably just checking boxes at this point. 
I mean, the best example I can give is Miss Marvel, in my opinion, was mm-hmm. one of the best productions that's ever come out. And it took nearly a decade, if not more, an unbelievable amount of funding. And if you look at that cast, don't quote me on this percentage, we can Google it. And something like 70 or 85% of the cast and crew were all South Asian Pakistani Muslims. Even with that, they still hired cultural consultants to come in and fact check, is this in fact a representation of this type of family and this socioeconomic dynamic in New Jersey? Mm -hmm. And so if, quote unquote, our own people still made the effort to hire, that's why that production is great. Because Mm -hmm. it wasn't a DEI checkbox. It was also like a well thought out. You look at the score of that series. A score is the music that gets put behind a production. Mm -hmm. If you look at the score for that series and you compare it to mainstream projects that are meant to be, quote unquote, South Asian, there's a stark difference in the music. The music is for diaspora kids that are South Asian background that are on the internet in the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. It's Sweatshop Boys. It's Raginder and Convict. It's these songs that any of us would immediately be like, ah, I know this. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a South Asian person that grew up in a very different lifestyle, where maybe you went to a certain type of university, you have a certain type of job, you grew up in a certain type of community, you won't be able to relate to that because it's not for you. Mm-hmm. And you just have to watch it the way you would watch something that doesn't have brown people in it and assess it. So I think DI is effective when it's done intentionally, when you see the fruits of its labor, when it's paid fairly. We talk to agencies about this a lot where they'll have a DEI officer. That officer's function is HR. That officer is not a marketing strategist for the ethnic community you're trying to reach mm-hmm. or make sure is included in this message. So when we come in, we're really diligent about being careful about who we work with because if they're not prepared to pay us to do our jobs fairly or they want us to consult on a campaign and a project and we're very aware that the people on the campaign and project have nothing to do with the populations they want to cater Mm -hmm. to, then it doesn't matter what we do in that situation because you've already shown me that the precedence of your resources is allocated in different places. And that's also not black and white. This is all very new, right? Mm -hmm. These sort of standards are less than 10 years old allocation of funding in a recession. I understand all of this, but there is always a way to make something not feel like a checkbox just by doing your research and by asking questions. Mm -hmm. I think we're really bad at encouraging curiosity and being like, how should we approach this as opposed to this is our approach and this is how much we can do. Do you want to get in on this or not? Mm. Right. We know very little of what's going on. The real stories are still much larger and we're just tapping the surface. And media is really not helping in that regard sometimes, I think. It is and it is not because media is always telling. There's always polarization, right, within media as well. So I guess your point, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think about your daughters and the world that I grew up in and I want to work on stuff that makes more Somias. And if somewhere along the line, that means somebody wants to talk about their heritage. Like I love poetry. And when I do poetry, a lot of it is in Punjabi and Urdu and Hindi, because those are the things that I feel and identify with. Then that's great. But fundamentally, there's going to be the highest amount of interracial children there ever have been. Mm -hmm. There's going to be the highest amount of pop culture absorption because of the internet making it so it doesn't matter where you live to some degree. And so we want to create things 
that are inclusive by positioning people as equal irrespective of their background and fighting for them to get compensated in the same way and creating careers in media and entertainment for young people of color. And if that takes me longer, because we don't overtly identify with doing everything for and by South Asians, then that's okay. Because fundamentally, I can only do what's authentic to me and my life is not for and by South Asians. Mm. I don't even know really what that means. It's a billion people. Right. So to wrap up, what are your three marketing do's and don'ts for anyone who's aspiring to build a small business from the ground up? And I think this is going to be of extreme value to our audience because, um, you know, their entrepreneurship is on the rise. People, there are a lot of people who want to start their own little gig. There's so much, I think, um, inspiration, like people like you who are doing things like that. And our audience could use some of that inspiration as well. So what are the three main marketing do's and don'ts for anyone who wants to start a small business. Okay. Um, the first do is to start with whatever knowledge you have. Mm-hmm. Google things, but just start. I think people spend a lot of time trying to be perfect or trying to understand something. You're not going to wake up one day with a product service and be an SEO specialist and <laughs> understand 85 APIs and algorithms. Just start. And if yeah. that looks like filing the paperwork for your business so that you're protected in the state you live in. If that looks like starting the Instagram page, if Mm -hmm. that looks like making your own Squarespace website, start. Mm -hmm. And start because the second marketing do, if you haven't tried to learn the basics of every part of your business, accounting, legal, finance, etc., you can never hire for it competently. Mm. You can't hire me if you don't know what marketing means mm-hmm. or what brand strategy means mm-hmm. or what you need help with. Mm. Figure out what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are by learning about every aspect of your business and trying it mm-hmm. because it'll make you much more competent with how you hire and how you spend your money. Mm-hmm. And then the third marketing do is to have a really strong sense of your story. Mm-hmm. When you're talking to me about a product, a service, if it's a new pair of pens, if it's a skin oil with saffron in it, if it's a coffee, if you're a restaurant, if you're an HR solution, if you're an email software, you must be able to articulate to me the function and the origin of your product and service mm-hmm. exceptionally well. Mm-hmm. Because the amount of times you say that is what's going to sell people. People buy people and stories. They don't buy products and services. The pitch. Yeah, absolutely. Marketing don'ts. Um, don't not have your website linked on all of your social media platforms. So baseline diligence. I think a lot of people don't pay attention to little things. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to be a search engine optimization expert to know that if you're selling a product, you should have a website or link to where you sell the website. And wherever you're promoting that, whichever social media channels should probably have the link to that website. Mm. Simple things that, you know, we think are general, but for a lot of communities with successful businesses or people in certain careers, they've never been exposed to this kind of thing, Mm. right? Mm. So think about logos and colors and professionalism and how you present your products and services. Are they easy to read? Mm. If I spend less than 20 seconds on your social media, do I already know what you're selling me or what you offer and provide? So don't over market. Don't make things complicated. You don't need 
when you're starting out cinematic quality reels and <laughs> you need to make sure that people know what you're selling and that your logo and the colors you use are the same on every platform. Yeah. So again, just a lot of that branding identity diligence. Mm. Be mindful of that. What's another don't? Don't cold DM a bunch of famous people. And this, I will say, is the one generalization I have only experienced with our South Asian clientele. This person should promote me because X. I sent this influencer this for free and they didn't post it. I understand how much it costs a small business to send something. But this proves to me that you didn't do the first thing, which was research each part of the business. Because you would know that people have no obligation to do anything for you, firstly. B, if you're not paying them, they certainly don't have an obligation to do anything. (laughs) No, you cannot WhatsApp harass and Instagram DM people to promote your event or your product or your service. Right. Stop doing that. And so I think those are my do's and don'ts. <laughs> Fourth do I'll say is make sure you're active in the communities you want to feel seen by. Mm-hmm. I tell people this a lot when they're like, there's no calendar of South Asian diaspora events or there's no this. Is it cool? Go to one. Go to one event and meet people. Buy a ticket to something else and support someone else. And you will inevitably meet Mm -hmm. all of the people that you want to see and know. But not if you're just expecting things. You have to participate in the universes you want to live in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's my advice. And then once you've done all of those things and avoided doing those other things, then you can hire us. We do small business consults all the time. Love it. Love it. I know I know we're towards the end of the thing, but we don't want to take more time from you. But a couple of things. One, I think, uh, where do people find you for their marketing needs and for whatever services they need? And two, second question, how do you de-stress given the busy lifestyle you have? Yeah. Um, where do they find us? Yeah. O-D-E-T-O dot C-O. There's a contact form there. Um the company is called Ode, and Ode means a dedicated poem. So everything we do is a dedication to someone, something, some part of us. Beautiful. Or you can just email me, Joshma, at odeto.co. Um, we always have time to talk to someone, and there's always some permutation of an affordable consult, especially if it's in the populations we care about servicing. Um, how do I de-stress? I dance. Not as much as I'd like, but I want to get back to that. I love love a little tumor, love a little fungra. Nice. Recently, I've been reading a lot. And I listen to music that my artists don't make. <laughs> and that has nothing to do with the communities I'm a part of. So right now, it's a lot of a jazz band out of London called Coco Roco. Oh, I'm going to check that out. I like jazz too. It's awesome. Thank you so much, Shashima. This was amazing. This was full of beautiful nuggets, so much information, so much depth and, uh, you know, understanding. This was amazing. It totally leaves us so inspired, you know, to do better. Absolutely. Yeah, this was so inspiring. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, until the next time, goodbye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Do continue to give us your valuable feedback via ratings, reviews, and hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss out on our new episodes. Your support means the world to us. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at chai underscore break underscore podcast to get the scoop on our latest episodes dropping every Wednesday. You can also write to us at chaibreakpodcast at gmail.com. 